Thanks to Audible and the new Audible original Power Moves for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. Power Moves by Adam Grant is available and you can get it for free when you sign up for a free Audible trial at audible.com slash foolpower or text foolpower, that's all one word, foolpower, to 500-500. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, February 11th, and that means we're talking financials. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and on today's show, we're going to dig into the latest big bank merger. We'll answer a couple of listener emails. We'll have, uh, as always, one to watch. But we begin today with part two of our Between Two Fools interview with Ameris Bank Corp CEO, Dennis Zember. Our conversation picks up where we left off on last week's show. This week, Dennis talks more about the opportunities with Ameris's big merger with Fidelity, where he sees the company in the next five years, and even offers up a book recommendation for us as well. Uh, you all are in a tough market, obviously, with some very big and very well-endowed competitors. I mean, banking is just a challenging space, and, and smaller smaller banks have, have their fair share of challenges. But you also have your fair share of opportunities. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit more to the opportunities and the challenges that you see as a smaller but clearly growing regional bank in today's economy. Yeah, I mm, challenges I probably the biggest challenge at Ameris Bank, I and I'd say it's probably been a challenge since I started Valentine's Day two thousand and five, so fourteen years, I think, from that and probably not not that I brought the challenge with me, but I, the challenge being a small bank, but growing, and you know, have, being a small bank with a bigger vision, is you're you're always kind of punching ahead of your class, right? And you you, it's hard being if you're a one billion dollar bank that's grown quickly to a five billion dollar bank to be a five billion dollar. A lot of times you still have one billion dollar processes. Mm-hmm. They have $1 billion solutions. And so we are always, I would tell you, for 14 years, we have been almost with breakneck speed, re-engineering pretty much everything we do, especially on the administrative side of the business, you know, to accommodate, to accommodate more assets, more revenues, more growth, more markets. You know, and so it feels like, you know, yesterday we had credit administration that looked like, a, um, this yesterday, but today that's not going to be good enough. And when we're sitting here, really two years ago, Jason, we were you know seven, six, seven billion dollars, or you know, and today we're staring at sixteen billion dollars. So we have to be serious about. I mean, it's a challenge to constantly re-engineer solutions so that we're competitive and efficient. And you, if you're not doing that, you're not. You can't just grow with the same processes. You have to grow with processes that are more scalable and leverageable, so that the growth is incrementally more profitable. Um, I think that kind of is. You take that to the customer. You know, when I first got here, our average loan size was sixty thousand dollars, and you know, today I was looking at credit committee. Today and we've got some fifty million dollar customers in there, and the credit administration, the attention, the expertise that it requires. I mean, a, a customer that's borrowing fifty million dollars requires, you know, a lender with a lot more expertise than the one that, um, you know, is fifty, sixty, hundred thousand dollars. And I'm not trying to be ob- master of the obvious there, but it is. <laughs> but we have to constantly be tweaking what we're doing. 
we have to train our folks extremely hard to to be ready for the next customer that they get in front of. And I, I will tell you that that for, for a bank that's small, and I guess now small is relative, you know, yeah. but for a bank that's small but growing or wanting to grow, it's got a big vision, you've got to have a passion and a zeal to, to be able to re-engineer things. I, the opportunity that I think that all that creates is that, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not in every, I'm not in other businesses and in other banks, and I, I don't want to sound like the parent who's talking about how great their children is, you know, with no real perspective here, but I'm convinced that our company, as fast as we've grown, and as many times as we've changed things, I think we've got more at people in this company that are not afraid of change, that, that don't panic when change comes about. And I think that gives us, that helps us be, that helps us stay nimble and light on our feet. It helps us, um, you know, not get in, it helps us not want to get into too much of a routine. It helps us stay creative, not just for the, for what we're doing in our company, our processes, but honestly, stay creative for the for the customer. Well, there's no question that's important. And I mean, we we say yes, you're a small but growing bank. You guys are getting ready to get a little bit bigger here, and um, the Fidelity deal, which you announced, I guess about a month ago or so, you're going to be um, acquiring Fidelity Bank and and rolling that into your operations. It gives you more exposure to bigger markets, Atlanta. Um, I think I saw Orlando, Jacksonville. You mentioned Charleston. Can you speak a little bit more just to the deal and why you? think investors should be excited about this okay i'm i am i am to say i'm excited about this is is an understatement this opportunity for Ameris bank really Ameris bank and fidelity the two of us this is an opportunity to create the kind of franchise that most community banks don't really get don't get to look at the the, the opportunity to be this material to be this noticeable, to be this, I guess, accessible in a market as large as Atlanta generally requires so much investment that community banks just just sort of avoid that. They they don't they don't try to build a franchise that would take in an entire market like Atlanta. With with what we already had in Atlanta and what Fidelity has, when we combine that, we are going to be a real alternative to super regionals in Atlanta. We'll, we are going to drive an image that puts us out there as the alternative. We're going to for, for businesses and consumers. Um, you know, it's, it's I'm again being from Atlanta. I mean, it's been 20 years or more since there was a community bank with that much reach all across the city, really in all of the markets and all of the counties. That that would be willing to customize a solution for customers and in a way that the market notices. So when you combine our footprint and our attitude and our willingness to fight for the business that we want, I'm I'm just convinced we're going to surprise and impress some folks in Atlanta. And I'll, I'll repeat what I said earlier because just just Jason, just being big in Atlanta or really any market like Atlanta, that's not what drives franchise value. That's right. not what that that isn't what impresses investors, and that's I don't think that's what holds. Investors um, in the stock. I, I think doing that is important, but doing that while being a bank that's got a passion for top quartile results, return on assets, return on tangible capital, being focused on efficiency, having strong capital, strong credit results, 
yeah, I think all of that's just as part, just as important a part of of the formula. Okay, so piggybacking a little bit on that, I think that uh, that that's that's a great answer. I tell you, I've, I've after you know going through y'all's call and the release and and all of this stuff, I. I, I uh, you get you convinced me. I think this is a good deal, and I think really you you did a good job of making the case in being able to just look two years down the road and say, "Listen, this may seem like a big deal right now, and it could present its fair share of challenges, but in two years, this thing is going to not only be accretive, but it's going to take you guys to a new level." And and so it got me thinking. You know, I mentioned we invest a little bit differently here at The Motley Fool than your typical Wall Street firm. We take a much longer timeline. Uh, think think Warren Buffett-style investing. We love to find those businesses that we can invest in for, for three to five years, or, or in some cases, even indefinitely. And, uh, and That's one of the things, frankly, that attracted me to Ameris was the size and the opportunity to be a part of something that had a, a very long runway of growth. But for you, thinking three to five years and even beyond, uh, let's just use five years. Where do you see Ameris Bank Corp. Five years from now, mm-hmm. I, I, let me answer. I would I would let me answer that question without saying anything about how big we'll be right. twenty or thirty billion dollars. I, I have no idea what what's ahead of us on there. I will tell you. I think we will have impressed people on the investor side, and the reason I believe that is because of the passion around here, of how serious we are about investor returns. Uh, we will keep looking at opportunities. I mean, I, we are going to grow organically, and we are going to continue doing M&A. We are, we've done 30 or 35 or 40 deals. We've lost count. So, we, are, we have a real passion, and we are, we are experts at M&A. And we've, we've figured out you know, organic growth as well. So, I know all of those things are going to Kind of continue if if the market's right. I think we'll combine all that with with you know our our level of creativity for the for the customer and the investor. I think we'll we'll continue to 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 do all that in a way that produces a shareholder return. I think so. If you ask me where we would be three to five years from now, I think we'll you and I may be. On the call here again, recapping what I said, but I think it'll be we we want to be three to five years from now having impressed investors and impressed customers, and um, maybe redo re, repeat what we've done in the last three to five years, which I I don't think is happenstance. I don't think that we just were successful with the last three to five years of growth and the last three to five years of profitability. It's we, I think we were. I think I know we were more purposeful about producing those results, and we'll just keep doing what we've become accustomed to doing. And I think um, be happy where we end up in five years. I would tell you that the executive team, our executive team has each member of our executive team has virtually all of their net worth invested in Ameris. So, interesting. Uh, you know, again, we're not doing it for our personal. Benefit, but when you when you when you're in that situation and you think like an owner, you you just tend to make different kind of different kind of decisions. You hit the nail on the head there. Think like an owner. That is something we uh, espouse here at the Motley Fool so often, and it and it really does create um, unique incentives, and and I think it does help 
guide good decision making. And, and I'm glad that you didn't shy away from that word expert when it came to M and A. And you know when the when the Fidelity deal was announced, I mean, I'm sure you noticed. I mean, Wall Street took a tone of caution immediately. I think the stock sold off around 10% that day, and that's that's pretty common. I mean, normally you see the the acquirer stock sells down. The stock of the company being acquired is usually up based on the value of the offer, and the market's kind of saying, hey. We get that you want to do this, but the burden of proof is on you. And I, and I, I was telling our our investors, I said you need to have your eyes on this one here because this is they have a long track record of M and A. They've done a lot of this stuff. They're good at it, and I have no reason to believe they're not going to be able to to pull this one off as well. So we feel like that really opened a window for investors there. And clearly, the market is starting to kind of come around. I think since since that uh, initial mm-hmm. sell off. So I, I, I agree. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I know our our investors are too. Uh, one more question for you. I want to wrap this up and let you get back to work. Uh, we, our listeners, our members, me. I mean, we're all. Big time readers here. We love reading anything and everything, and uh, so I, I just I'd be remiss if I did not ask you if you uh, had any book recommendations for our listeners. Anything you've read recently? Anything? It can be any topic, something that you just enjoyed. Anything out there that uh, you think uh, our listeners should should check out? All right. Uh, I recently put down what I was reading, and I started. I was at a mortgage conference. At a for actually at one of the a Fidelity Mortgage Conference, um, just sort of meeting their people, you know, part of our integration efforts, and they were handing out a book called Real Leadership by John Addison, hmm. and John was John was a co-president at Primerica back in the day, but uh, I was just flipping through it, and just a couple pages in, I noticed that. John Addison's mother was from Moultrie, Georgia, and so it had me hooked. <laughs> you know, it had me hooked, and so I just have been reading the whole thing. And I, I would tell you, it's 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 just good practical stuff that I think is that leaders should read and remember. One of the things I really related to, I really related to one of his comments, and it just sort of kept me in the book when um, he says a, a good leadership principle is to try to make your parents proud. I like that, that uh, be making decisions that leadership decisions or just general decisions that you would make your parents proud, and I think that that is that is something that I think of quite a bit. Um, so that's very relatable as a parent as a son. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's very relatable indeed. Well, thanks so much, Dennis Zember. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to to talk with us today to tell our listeners more about Ameris Bancorp and where uh, you all are headed. Uh, I think this is an exciting story, and uh, you know it's a stock that I'll continue to cover and uh, look forward to the opportunity to to get to speak with you again sometime in the near future. All right, Jason, thank you. And joining me now in the studio via Skype is certified financial planner, Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how's it going? Great. How are you guys? Doing very well. You have a good weekend uh, down there in hopefully sunny South Carolina. It was nice and warm over the weekend. It's cold now, but at least we had a couple of nice days. Did you guys have a school delay today? No, it's not that cold. <laughs> you see, we <laughs> we had a school delay today. It was uh, it was chilly. We had some snow last night. Some ice. Uh, I guess they just you know want to be rather be safe than sorry up here in Fairfax County is a huge county, so it's a lot of kids to account for. 
It's in the 40s here, which we think is cold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Having grown up in South Carolina, I can vouch for that. I co-sign. <laughs> um, hey, listen, let's get this started uh, this week. We want to talk about the big news that came out last week in the uh, world of banking. There is a big merger that's going to be taking place here. BB&T is going to be acquiring SunTrust. Uh, that is a deal. They're going to be buying SunTrust for $28.2 billion. It's going to create the country's sixth largest bank after all is said and done. Now, Matt, you've had a chance to go through the mechanics of this deal, the implications. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on this announcement. Well, for the most part, I think it's definitely a good move. Um, Now, take this with a grain of salt, because I am always suspicious when companies justify mergers with the term synergies. As in, this is going to create over a billion dollars of annual cost saving after this merger is completed, <laughs> which is exactly what we're hearing here. But in this case, I think it might actually be true. Um, the main reason BB&T and SunTrust are both generally Southeast-based bank, bank companies. So there's a lot of overlap between their branch networks. So let's say if one town has a BB&T and a SunTrust branch right next to each other, they could consolidate that into one and save, actually save a good bit of money. So there is substantial cost saving that should be realized here. Uh, the other thing, they're moving their headquarters to Charlotte. Uh, right now, one's in Winston-Salem and one's in Atlanta. I'm not, I can't remember which is which off the top of my head. But they're moving to Charlotte, which is a big banking hub. Bank of America is based there. Wells Fargo's East Coast operations are pretty much based there. So there's a huge talent pool of just great banking talent there. Yeah. And it's just, a, I, I love the move to Charlotte. Um, and this should give them, not only are they going to be the sixth largest bank in America, but this should make them a dominant force in the Southeast. Um, I'd say about half of my friends down here bank with either BB&T or SunTrust. So now this will kind of combine their forces and just give them a really good market share in their core area. On the other hand, there are some downsides. Um, you mentioned this is going to be the sixth largest bank. Um, they're combined. They're going to have about four hundred forty billion dollars in assets. That wow. puts them over. That right. That puts them <laughs> over the key um, two hundred fifty billion dollar mark to become a systemically important financial institution or city. Mm-hmm. The bigger you are in banking, the tighter you're regulated. Um, not as big of a concern right now, given the current administration. But after twenty twenty, if you know the other party gets in power. They're, they might crack down on banking regulations, and they're not going after the small ones. Yep. So that's my biggest concern about the deal is that this kind of could increase regulatory pressure on them. I think it'll be more than offset by the cost saving that I just mentioned and just kind of the market share advantage, but definitely a good move. Uh, it's nice to see some mergers happening in the banking world again. There's, we've had a ton in the other sectors, but not mentioned banking lately. For sure. And I mean, speaking of mergers, I mean, as the uh, interview with, with Ameris' uh, CEO there, Dennis Zember, uh, noted, and we, and we talked about on the show here briefly a time ago, is this, this acquisition with Ameris Bank Corp and Fidelity, which, I mean, let's be clear, that's a tiny deal, right? That's bringing together essentially a $1.5 billion market cap bank with a $750 million market cap bank. I mean, they're going to have total assets somewhere in the neighborhood of $17 billion. So, that that's apples and oranges, but I you know I want to go back to something that Dennis was talking about in our interview because I think I feel like this was perfect timing having his interview lining up with the news on this merger because we get an understanding of the challenges and opportunities for both 
organizations there. I mean, Dennis said in that interview that the the deal with Fidelity gives them really the opportunity to drive an identity as a real alternative in the super regionals sector in big markets like Atlanta, Orlando, Jacksonville, Charleston. Um, I'm sure I'm sure North Carolina will come into play there as well. Um, but you know, we talk about scale and how this is going to create uh, this this BB and T and SunTrust deal is going to create the sixth largest bank. And I mean, Dennis made the point there that just being big these days in the banking industry isn't enough. And I mean, it it comes down to not only footprint, but but he feels like their advantage at Ameris, that attitude and willingness to fight for the business they want, he feels like they're going to be able to surprise some people because of that culture they have with the company. And perhaps the advantage there in being a bit smaller and being a bit more nimble and maybe not necessarily on regulators' radar like these bigger banks are going to be. Yeah, definitely. Um, It's not always great to be big, especially in a heavily regulated (laughs) industry. Um, Banking being one of probably the most heavily heavily regulated industry in the world. Understandably, I mean. Sure, sure. Um, But especially the ones at the top. you know, I mean, you've seen how much Wells Fargo's in the news, and it's not. And I mean, there have been small banks that have, you know, acted just as badly as Wells Fargo, but you don't hear about them because they're not as scrutinized and as in the spotlight. So this is definitely going to put them in the spotlight. I'm curious as to what the new name's going to be. Okay, that was. That? You just jumped in it because we were just talking about that before taping as Chris and Abby were leaving the studio from taping today's Market Foolery. We started kicking around some ideas because you you got to figure that the the nature of this deal you feel you feel like probably they just brand everything to BB&T, right? I mean, combining those two names is going to probably be pretty difficult. My observation, SunTrust sounds too much like a soda, right? And if you try to combine the two, I mean, maybe the best case scenario you get something like Sunny B. I don't know. But all I'm saying is, I think it's probably easiest to go with one or the other, as opposed to making some newfangled name that no one has any real understanding of from a brand perspective, right? Yeah, that could be actually a, one of the potential risks of the deal is that no one's going to know what this brand is that yep. they're going to create. Because they've already said they're not going to keep either of the names. They're going to go with something new. Oh, uh, okay. So, it definitely is going to be either one. Well, Hey, everybody, come back with Sunny B. We've got a great offer for you there on interest rates. That will make you smile with our date, put you in a good mood. I don't know, I don't know Which one do you think has better better national recognition, BB&T or SunTrust? I, I, tend, to, I tend to lean towards BB&T. Um, I mean, being from the Southeast, I feel like I've, I've had exposure to both of them. Um, but, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are people out there that would say they, they're more familiar with SunTrust as well. It, it strikes me that's going to be a big challenge for them coming up with a new name that really resonates with consumers. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's been done before and surprised me in the past, but yeah. we'll have to see what they come up with. Yep, we shall see. Uh, and before we continue, it's uh, worth reminding our listeners that we are thankful to Audible and the new Audible original Power Moves by Adam Grant for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. In Power Moves, Adam interviews two dozen major CEOs and leaders, to talk about how power is changing today and the best ways to use it effectively. You'll hear practical ideas and insights from leaders like Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook, Satya Nadella of Microsoft, Mary Barra of GM, and David Solomon of Golden of Goldman Sachs. I just listened to the free sample earlier with Adam talking to Stuart Butterfield of Slack, and I'm going to tell you, it sounds like an interesting listen, so I'm all in. I'm going to get it. I'm going to give it a listen. Power Moves by New York Times bestselling author Adam Grant is available on Audible, and you can get it for free. 
when you sign up for a free Audible trial at audible.com slash foolpower or text foolpower, that's all one word, foolpower, to 500-500. Okay, Matt, let's jump in real quick to tweets and emails and whatnot. I'm going to start off here with a tweet from a loyal listener. Uh, and this is actually in regard to a show we did last week. Not a show that you and I did. I, I taped the uh, Tuesday episode of Industry Focus with Asit Sharma. Uh, we talked about the consumer goods sector and um, uh, Beyond Meat, an IPO that's coming down the pike here soon. And Warren uh, had just chimed in. He said, Industry Focus is officially my favorite podcast series. They have the best hosts taking some deep dives into business trends, keeping listeners a step ahead of Wall Street. Warren, thank you so much for those kind words. We really enjoy what we do. Glad it's helpful. Always happy to help. You know where we are. Um, Okay, Matt, first question here. And this was a question we got from last week's uh, YouTube Live um, show that we did. Chris and uh, and Andy and I sat in and did this show. And there was a question that was posed from a viewer. And and this sounded like it was right up your alley. Uh, What do you think about realty income, ticker O, for a new investor? Is it a good idea? Well, it's my single largest stock position. So, so you're saying it's a good idea. So I'm saying it's a good idea, and here's why. Uh, if you haven't heard of the stock, like you said, ticker symbol O, Realty Income, it's a real estate investment trust that specializes in freestanding retail properties. Now, a lot of investors are hesitant to get involved with anything involving physical retail, but you shouldn't be in this case, and here's two main reasons why. One, Realty Income focuses on businesses that are not threatened by e-commerce or recessions, really. Um, think of discount-oriented retailers like warehouse clubs, like Costco, Sam's Club, things like that. Also, non-discretionary businesses, things that people need, like uh, pharmacies, gas stations. And then businesses that have a service component, like uh, a movie theater or um, you know, a restaurant, things that people have to physically go to that don't really have an e-commerce equivalent. Um, so that's number one. Number two is their lease structure. Um, they're on what are called triple net leases, which is a long-term lease structure. Uh, Realty Income's typical tenant signs a 15-year lease or more, so minimal turnover. And uh, the triple net lease means that they're responsible for paying property taxes, building insurance, maintenance expenses. It pretty much shifts all of the variable costs of property ownership to the tenant. And um, rent naturally goes up every year. It's called an escalator. So it's like a perfect business model for consistent, steady income. Um, Realty income pays a great dividend. It's right around 4% right now. They've increased it over 90 times since it's been listed in 1994 on the NICE. They pay monthly dividends. They're coming up on their 500th dividend payment um, (laughs) consecutive. So it's it's just like clockwork, very low risk business. Um, Valuation's a little high, but you get what you pay for. And I really don't see their streak of dividend increases ending anytime soon. It's my dividend stock that I plan on holding for, you know, till I retire. So I mean, hey, listen, I, I that that you know, any anytime, you know, we we are very transparent about our holdings, and we try to make sure people understand that the companies we talk about that we like, a lot of times we own those businesses because we feel that they are good investments. Uh, we are not trying to push anybody in any direction where they shouldn't be able to feel comfortable but but Matt I mean you are a a you have a lot of experience in in that real estate industry and I, and I mean, obviously you're going to be helping with with a new uh, real estate service here coming up too so 
um, and take that with a grain of salt there too, and and put that put that uh, put that ticker at the top of my watch list. I don't know that I have any exposure to REITs, but now that I know this is your biggest holding, I think I'm gonna have to at least keep it on my radar. Uh, but we have one more email here from Carl. Uh, Carl, Carl asks. Uh, can you please talk about the bulge bracket investment banks and why they're so important? What their influence is on the market, and as a small-time investor, what do I need to watch for? And you know, man, I, I I think this is really more a terminology thing than anything else. I mean, it's this bulge bracket investment bank uh, terminology that perhaps he wants a little bit more clarification on. But can you shed any light? Uh, like I wasn't actually familiar with that term until nor you, was I until you sent me the article. But generally, it just means the big investment banks, right? Um, I've already I've, uh, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley qualify based on the definition in the article I was reading. Um, Goldman, as you know, is one of my favorite bank stocks. Um, Morgan Stanley is also one of my favorites, but eh, for different reasons. I, as a rule, don't invest in banks that are not based in America. Just because I don't fully understand all the regulations, there's it's like I said a very complex industry. I don't. It would take way too much to understand the banking regulations in every single foreign market. Yeah. So it's and I understand the American banking regulations really well. So that's why I tend for my money I, I tend to stick with the American investment banks. Out of those, my Goldman is my favorite right now. Um, but yeah, I learned a new term. <laughs> yeah, me too, and hopefully our listeners did as well. Uh, okay, before we get into one to watch for the coming week, I do want to remind listeners uh, that we have another save the date for you. If you remember last week, we talked about a YouTube live show we were giving um, a try, and we're going to give it a try again this coming week on this Wednesday, uh, February 13th. We're going to be doing another YouTube live market show where Chris Hill Ron Gross and I are going to be talking stocks, and we're going to be taking your questions. So, how do you find the show? Well, it's pretty easy, actually. You just go to The Motley Fool's YouTube channel. Uh, you can go to youtube.com slash The Motley Fool. Hit subscribe, and we can see you on Wednesday, February 13th. Still ironing out the time. It's going to be in the 3 to 3.30 range. Uh, but again, just go to that Motley Fool YouTube channel, click subscribe, and then you'll be able to, to get in touch with us on Wednesday. And, and hopefully, we'll be able to... Uh, Answer a few more questions for listeners, um, you know, about what's going on in the markets today. Earnings season in full gear here. Uh, it's a great time to be doing what we do for a living, Matt. All right, jumping into one to watch for the coming week. What's the stock that you've got on your radar, Matt? What's your one you're watching? Mine is Tanger Factory Outlets, uh, ticker symbol SKT. Since we already talked about realty income and the good kind of retail, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to kind of push that a little bit further. Um, this is another one that I own, not quite to the magnitude that I own Realty Income. Uh, Tanger is a great dividend stock, pays about 6.3% right now. And it's also a kind of retail that's not it's not terribly vulnerable to e-commerce. Um, the nature of outlet retail is very experiential. Um, I mean, I don't know about you, but the reason that I, me and my wife go to the outlets from time to time is to find stuff that we can't find anywhere else. Sure. So it's got the experiential component. It's got a discount component, which keeps people physically going to those properties instead of browsing online equivalents. And they released their earnings today. So by the time you're hearing this, their uh, year end will probably be out. Pay attention to their occupancy rate. Uh, pay attention to any concessions they're making to tenants to keep them around. But more importantly, kind of pay attention to their future plans of how they're 
planning to adjust to the new retail environment. They've been gradually adding more, you know, dining options and other experiential components to their properties to further, you know, insulate them from e-commerce headwinds. Um, but like I said, great dividend payer, 6.3%, good, good coverage ratio. So that's not in danger anytime soon. And if that one dips, I may just add to my position in that. Well, there you go. I like outlet shopping. You know, I find really helpful, and I think um, just as an example of one brand that's done a good job of incorporating the outlet shopping into their app is Under Armour. I mean, a lot of times I'll just open that app and go straight to the outlet section, and you find all of this stuff that they have on sale or closeout or whatever. Uh, and I mean, they're not the only ones doing it, but but uh, yeah, man, outlet shopping. You can always find some good stuff at some good prices. Um, I'm going to go with a company a lot of folks recognize here, Ellie Mae, ticker E-L-L-I. Uh, earnings are out on Thursday. And it, really, this one's just interesting to me. It's, Ellie Mae has had a great year thus far. It's up something like 30%. And this is on the tail of kind of a tough uh, 2018 because it kind of got to the point here where the housing market was becoming a little bit tricky. Uh, tighter housing inventory, rising interest rates was all fueling low home affordability. So, they were kind of getting dinged on the purchase side and the refinance side. As rates go up, people tend to refinance less. And that all really is what Ellie Mae does with their lending platform. Um, so, the language on last year or last quarter's call wasn't all that exciting. <laughs> I mean, they were kind of kind of dull, a little, uh, a little down in the dumps maybe. But I'm going to be interested to see how they feel about things going into this call and the rest of the year, especially because we've heard talk about even potentially rates coming back down a little bit. Uh, a lot of people out there projecting that the Fed's not going to do anything else to rates for the rest of the year. Who knows? But I mean, it's just going to be interesting to me to see uh, how how their uh, attitude is on the call. But either way, still one I like, still own shares myself. And speaking of one to watch and shares we own ourselves, Matt, you bought into my one to watch from last week, didn't you? I did. <laughs> I bought I, I bought Markel right after the um, right after your well, not right after the the earnings, but shortly after when it dipped. Uh, just over a thousand dollars, I got a couple more shares, and I was very excited. I was glad Jason put that on my radar <laughs> last week. Well, I mean, I think you and I feel the same way about that company, so I'm glad you're able to add a few more uh, shares to your portfolio. Matt, listen, it's been great talking to you. Appreciate you joining this week. Uh, always good to be here. All right, and folks, as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Dan the Man Boyd. We're out there wishing our guy Austin Morgan, hoping he's feeling better there. He had uh, had surgery last week on his shoulder, I think. There, Austin, hoping you're resting and recovering. Uh, for uh, for Matt Frankel, for Dennis Zimber of Ameris Bank Corp. I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>